0: We're actually going through the book of Titus, but Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5, and follow along with me. The scripture will be uh, on the screen above, and listen to what it says. It says, the reason I left you in Crete, remember this is Paul writing to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick, quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would speak to us through your word. We pray, again, that you would use this time to point us in the direction, to let us see Jesus more clearly, to let us see how a church can be effective, how a church can be uh, full of healthy leaders and at the same time be a healthy church. And so, God, we thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, As you do, I want to encourage you with this. I want you to think about what takes place. Leadership is vital in every organization, every business, every team, and likewise in every church. And what we have to begin to understand is that everything rises and falls on leadership. As a matter of fact, uh, there are businesses you could look at, there are places you've gone that you would say, hey, it is obvious that the leadership here in this business or in this organization is very lacking because we can see it in how everything takes place. In other words, maybe the way they treat people. A matter of fact, I would even say this and venture to say this is one of the greatest things you can understand is that when everything rises and falls on leadership, you know and I know the places that you would say are reputable for serving people. Like when I say, what is one of the best fast food restaurants when it comes to serving people? What would you say? <laughs> Why does everybody say Chick-fil-A? What's that? <laughs> okay, because it's an oxymoron for most places, service and fast food don't go together because you oftentimes hear over and over, it doesn't matter what Chick-fil-A you go to, what do they say when you say, thank you, my pleasure? And if you haven't been to Chick-fil-A, let me just say something. Anybody not been to Chick-fil-A? Because I will take you out to lunch. Okay, Paul, I'm gonna take you out to lunch one of these days. You can't do it on Sunday, but we're gonna hit Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A in my opinion, is God's grace <laughs> to fast food industry, all right? Chick-fil-A is phenomenal food, all right? But Chick-fil-A sets a standard. In other words, when an employee comes in, they go through training. They are taught very specific in how you're going to respond to customers, what you're going to do, how you're going to take care of food. And the reason why I say that is because I worked for at Chick-fil-A for 2 years in high school, and I can tell you point blank, every month we had a training thing that we had to watch. We had a video, we sat down and watched, and we had to sign. And then we would cover it in our Meetings every year, like two to three times a year on Sundays, even though they're not open, on Sunday afternoons, about two o'clock from five o'clock. Guess what we did? We cleaned. And I mean, we cleaned everything. If you could think about it, we would take the tables and we'd turn them over, we'd scrape them and we'd disinfect them with bleach water. And it was, it was crazy. How many fast food restaurants, you know, disinfect the bottom of their tables with bleach water, let alone the tops, all right? But when you think about leadership, everything rises and falls on leadership. And likewise, I believe it fits wholeheartedly within the church realm, what we have to begin to understand is in order to be an effective church, we have to be a church full of leaders who understand the big picture of what's going on. And Paul here is telling Titus, listen, I am leaving you on as the leader here in Crete in order to straighten out things and in order to refute the bad teaching that's taken place. See, you can identify very simply if you're a leader by looking and seeing who's following you. See, today, just as at the time of the writing of this letter, we need men, we need leaders, we need people who are going to step out and lead the way, who are going to show the way, who are going to be able to train and teach. They're going to have people who, we're going to need people with character, people with maturity in Christ who will lead with strong biblical convictions and will love and shepherd the church. And so here's what I get the challenge or the opportunity to do is to dig in today and basically say, what's it mean to be a healthy leader? What does it take to be a healthy leader? And what is it gonna take to be a healthy church? Because the truth of the matter is, you don't get a healthy church without healthy leaders. a matter of fact, I can say over and over and over again, the churches that are dying, the churches that are struggling, the churches that are floundering, the churches that aren't reaching the community are usually churches that don't have healthy leadership. Matter of fact, there there are a lot of churches in the SBC realm that the people think they, they own the church and so they dictate what goes on. And in some way, shape, or form, we have missed the boat in understanding that healthy leaders develop or grow healthy churches. So here's what I want you to begin to understand as we dig into this. I understand wholeheartedly that trust in leadership has to be earned. And it's earned by providing and protecting the people. It's earned by feeding and leading. It's earned by teaching and tending to the spiritual needs of the people within the church. So I'm not asking you to follow blindly. What I'm saying is that in biblical leadership, trust is earned based upon what you do and who you are. First of all, really who you are. Second of all, in what you do. And Titus is basically being told or challenged by Paul or or left there by Paul because he said, hey, I need you to stay there to begin to do some things. If you remember last week, we talked about our mission. And our mission is to go and make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples, taking life in Christ to our neighbors and nations. But it doesn't stop at one generation. It doesn't stop and say, hey, you know what? Look, I became a follower of Jesus, so now I don't have to do anything. It becomes this point of saying, hey, I've become a follower of Jesus. Now I need to grow and I need to take Jesus to other people. I want to make disciples. I want to see a broad expanse. We want to see more and more disciples made, but we're also praying for and we're working towards and we want to start working towards planting churches or helping replant dying churches. I've said this before and I'm gonna say it again. I know of five churches right here in Independence that within the next five years are gonna have to make drastic changes and drastic measures in order to survive. Just a simple fact. But I want you to understand also this, that God believes that the leadership of the local church is so important that he addresses it in multiple sections of Scripture. Acts chapter 20, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. See, the emphasis of each one of those sections of Scripture lists the, and, and, and lists or the characteristics or the common qualities that each of these people are to have in order to lead the church. And what I want you to see is this, that God is primarily interested in who you are. He is more interested in who you are than what you do. Matter of fact, I would say that ventures to be the problem because a lot of times people think I have to do something in order to gain God's grace and God's acceptance when the reality is, no, you don't do anything to gain God's grace and God's acceptance. He's already offered it to you. But as a result of God's grace and God's acceptance, now I want to be obedient to do what he's asked me to do. There's a big difference in what goes on. I've, I've even had people tell me before, well, I have to get my life straightened out before I can go to church. I have to get my life straightened out before I can go to God because I need to fix what needs to be fixed before I can go to him. And that's completely backwards. God doesn't expect you to fix everything and then come to him. God says, you come to me and I will help walk you through this idea of fixing you to help you become all that you were created to be. And so the beauty here in Titus is to understand that healthy leaders develop healthy churches. Healthy leaders develop healthy disciples who have healthy churches in order to accomplish a vision. And here's here's what I will lay out. And and I'm a matter of fact, uh, next week, our leadership is going to be meeting in the morning. For those who don't know, I've contacted some of you, uh, but we're going to be meeting at 8 a.m. next, next week. Our, our leadership team, team leaders are going to meet at 8 a.m. next week, next Sunday. All right? But I want, I, want, I want to challenge our church in this, okay? And this doesn't fall on just the pastor. This takes everybody doing their part. Since I've been here, we've had roughly 24 baptisms in six years, that's good, that's great, all right? That's, that's higher than the average. Matter of fact, most churches our size average less than one a year, which is honestly bothersome, okay? But if we've had 24 baptisms in six years, it's gonna take a supernatural work of God to have 10 baptisms next year. But my goal is that we would have 10 And to me, that seems like a pretty small goal. If a church of 65 to 70 can see 10 baptisms and not just stop there, but say, hey, we're gonna go beyond 10 baptisms, that we're gonna make these people into disciples. We're gonna lead them to follow Jesus day in and day out, that we make them disciples so that they can share the gospel with their friends. Here's what happens. Maybe 10 is too small a number. Maybe it should be 25. Because the truth of the matter is this. As I sit down and talk with more and more pastors, as I get to know guys, listen, I understand what ends up happening is oftentimes some church starts to grow and people leave a church and they go over here and the church goes, hey, look, we're being successful. We're reaching people because we're growing in numbers in attendance on Sunday morning. But the reality is if we gauge the numbers, we're not necessarily growing by reaching people. We're growing by getting people from other churches. And what I want to see is this, that we could see 10 baptisms of people who have never put their faith and trust in Christ and would say, I'm putting my faith and trust in Christ and I want to follow him by believer's baptism. That's my public commitment saying, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose again. 10, the most we've ever had in one year is four. Sorry, no, at one time, four. We had six in one year. The most we've ever had in one year was six. So that's what I'm gonna ask you to pray towards, that we would see 10 people baptized over the next year. Why? Because, not because your pastor's doing it, but because your pastor's doing it as long as everybody in the church is doing it, that we get to share the gospel with those. So hear me out. God is primarily interested in who you are, But I also want you to understand in order to accomplish a vision of seeing people make disciples who make disciples to see churches planted and replanted, that's a God-sized task that takes everybody being a part and it takes healthy leaders of the church who demonstrate godliness in their commitments, in their conduct, in their character, in their convictions. That's the big point today. In order to have healthy leadership, we need healthy leaders of the church to demonstrate godliness in their commitments in their conduct, in their character, and in their convictions. Now, hear me out when I say this. I wanna ask this question, what is a godly leader? What is a godly leader? And I believe we're gonna answer it very simply. Hey, Grout, I need you to keep up. You're not paying attention, dude. I'll be on you because you're not watching, all right? No, go back to the main statement because everybody didn't get it, all right? Healthy leaders of the church demonstrate godliness in their commitments, their conduct, their character, and their convictions. So what is a healthy leader? Number one is this. A healthy leader is a man of godly commitments. Now, hear me out when I say this. What we have to understand is that Paul is identifying what it is to be a pastor, or who is to be a pastor. In other words, the lead shepherd of the church. And I want you to understand this also as well. If you notice what Paul says in verse five, he says, the reason I left you in Crete. Anybody know anything about Crete? It's, well, it is in Greece, that's correct. It's an island. As a matter of fact, it's also known in Roman mythology or Greco-Roman mythology as the birthplace of Zeus. It's also known as the, the, the starting point, and I'm trying to remember the name of, of what that uh, mythical creature is where he's like a uh, half bull, half dog, or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? Starts with an M. Manitar, whatever it is, okay, yeah. So that's the birthplace of that as well, but it's also the foundation of where the emperor worship in the Greco-Roman world took place. And Paul is saying, listen, Titus, I want you to stay on at Crete and I want you to, listen to what he says, straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. What was left unfinished was the simple fact that the discipleship process hadn't been completely wrapped up. They weren't necessarily making disciples. There were some who were followers of Jesus that so needed to be taught that there were some false teachings going on that had infiltrated into their lives. And so Paul leaves Titus there in order to appoint elders, that's pastors. A matter of fact, you have to understand that elders, pastors, and overseer is the same. They're all different words, but they all speak of the same person in the Bible. So sometimes people will say, well, how come we don't have elders? Well, elders are pastors, so we call them pastors. Well, how come we don't have an overseer? Because an overseer is an elder who's a pastor. So the term pastor basically encompasses everything that takes place. So he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you may straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. So listen, what is a godly leader? A godly leader is a man of godly commitments. A godly leader is one who leads with commitment to his church, first and foremost. And I want you to understand what's taking place in society especially in in the world that, that we're involved in most of the time. Matter of fact, I can speak from personal experience, even with our son and playing baseball is this, that when it comes to commitment to the church, most men are flighty and it's harder to get men to come and the women are like, hey, look. Matter of fact, I'll even say this. When it comes to getting commitment to the church, a lot of times especially in your smaller churches, guess who rises to the top and leads? Women. Now listen to me and I wanna be very clear because this is not chauvinistic. We love our women. We need strong leaders who are women as well. But I want you to understand that in the biblical perspective of what takes place, when men lead and lead well, the women lead and lead well, and the church is healthier as a whole. But when the women lead by themselves and the men aren't active and involved, the church falls flat on its face. Because there's something to be said about what goes on when a man is leading his family, he's leading his wife, and he's leading within the church. It's not chauvinistic at all. We love our wives. We love our women. We need you to serve within the church. We need your leadership in things within the church. But listen, the role of the man is to be the one who is committed to the church, the one who leads out, the one who leads the way. A matter of fact, I can tell you from growing up that when I grew up, my dad was like, it seemed like he was always a deacon that I could ever remember but he led in Sunday school he was a Sunday school teacher and he was a deacon and sometimes he would be chairman of deacons and he served on committees and he served he was when i was growing up we had a bus ministry and my dad drove that bus and i can remember getting up and we would go i would go with my dad we would drive the bus there was the bus driver and then there was a the bus captain and the bus captain kept all the kids in order with like a whip not really but they would play games and do things like that but That's what I remember growing up. And so I can remember growing up that Sunday morning at eight o'clock, we would leave the house. We'd go get on the bus. The bus would have its route. I would ride with my dad. We would then go to church. Our children's ministry back in the day when I was growing up in, in, in a small town in Wyoming ran 300 kids, 300, all right? Great, but I want to show you something what takes place. 300 kids we had. Then after the kids ministry stuff, we would have children's church. And after children's church, church would be over because children's church ran at the same time as adult church was going on. And then we'd get back on the bus. We'd drop everybody off and we'd get home about two o'clock. And the reason why I remember two o'clock is because that's about the time the Denver Broncos game started. Whoop, whoop, yep. And we would sit down at our TV trays and we would watch the Broncos game because every Sunday we had roast corn and rice. My favorite meal. But I can tell you that at 8 a.m. we were at church, ready to get the buses, and we wouldn't get home till 1.45, 1.50. Now listen, I understand that times have changed and stuff, but I'm asking you this question. Are you a man of godly commitments? And the reason why I bring that up is because, and I, I told you I was going to go back to my son's thing, it is very easy to chase after everything else. And what I've seen is the, the, the demise, to a certain extent, of the local baseball leagues because of the rise of travel ball and as a result people chase after everything thinking I'm just going to get my son a scholarship. I'm going to get my daughter a scholarship. They're going to they're going to get this. It's going to be great and as a result the commitment to the church has failed or faded. Now I'm not saying and hear me out very clearly because I think there's a balance here. One of my greatest mission fields has been coaching. One of the greatest opportunities has been coaching. One of the most fun times, I can honestly say, has been coaching my son's baseball team. But I also know that it was my commitment that I had to be at church on Sunday morning. I wanted to lead the way, and so those were things that take place. But a man of godly commitments, listen to what he, again, what he says. It's not just a godly commitment to the church. Listen to what he says Uh, again. Was it that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you? All right? But it's also this idea, if you follow along in verse six, it says, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. See, the simple fact is this. The man is in love with and he's committed not just to his devotion to the church, but he's also in love with and committed to devotion with his wife. Now, there's all kinds of ways we can chase this out. Matter of fact, some people will say, if you've ever been divorced, you are completely disqualified from ever being a pastor. Now that argument with that would be, what if somebody gets a divorce, then becomes a believer, then becomes somebody who feels called to pastor, all right? I have a hard time believing that God has a scarlet D etched on somebody's life because they had a bad experience or made a bad decision or, or, and I, and I say this cautiously because hear me out, right? I believe wholeheartedly in this, that once married, always married. But I also know that there's a time and a place when somebody understands and realizes there are certain things you can't do. There are certain things I can't put up with, whether it's marital infidelity, maybe it's somebody who is, uh, Obviously, two unbelievers came together. They got divorced, and later somebody becomes a believer. But here's what I want you to understand. When he says this, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. I believe wholeheartedly this, that a one wife literally means a one woman man. In other words, back in this day on the island of Crete, as well as some of the things that Timothy faced, there was a practice of polygamy for some. There was also the practice that Women, a matter of fact, if you were to go to the Middle East, there are some places in the Middle East still hold to this, that women are for babies and then there are other women for, or your wife, sorry, are for babies and then other women are for pleasure. It's a common practice in many other countries as well in some places. Like when you wanna have a baby, you have sex with your wife. Otherwise, you can do whatever the heck you want. But what Paul is saying here is that a, an elder, a pastor, must be a one-woman man. That means he's committed only to his wife. In other words, there is no adultery going on. There is no lustful man who flirts with another woman who dabbles in pornography. That person would be disqualified from any sort of church leadership. While under our watch, we also have to understand that in the midst of this, while under our watch, our responsibility is also our children. And so listen again, remember what we said Paul leaves Titus here in order to straighten some things out, as well as to see more churches planted. And so Paul lays the story on. He says, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, and a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So here's what he's saying. As a pastor, as a leader within the church, do your, do your kids believe Are you teaching them how to follow Jesus? Are you teaching them how to love Jesus? Are you showing them the way, showing them why they need Jesus? Are you discipling your children, all right? And then it says not being wild and disobedient, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that the pastor's kids are perfect. Yeah, right? (laughs) Everybody knows that's not true. But for some reason, in some places, some churches seem to think that the pastor's kids should be perfect that they shouldn't be kids. Now, I want to I very seriously say this. Thank you for not being that type of a church. Thank you for being graceful. Thank you for investing in our kids and partnering with us, teaching them and training them and loving on them and encouraging them and everything else. Because trust me, nobody tends to be harder on his own kids than myself. And my wife would probably amen that as well. And she just smiles really big. What I want you to see is this. While our children are under our care, the role of a church leader, the role of the pastor or elder is to make sure that his children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. In other words, somebody who just walks around constantly in disobedience, disobeying God, disobeying other leaders, disobeying people in authority over them, And so we begin to see the role is a man of godly commitments. Number two is this, a man of godly conduct. And you can pick back up there where where we were at, but listen to what he says as far as godly conduct. Verse seven, since an overseer is entrusted with what? What's he entrusted with? Verse seven, it says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work or since the pastor is entrusted with God's work, he must be what? Blameless. So he goes on and he says this, blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Here's what I want you to begin to see. Godly leaders must be blameless because they have to have a good reputation. a matter of fact, we should see it Right now, with what, what has gone on within the Catholic Church, I would even say what's gone on in some leaders within Baptist circles and everything else is that a godly leader has to have a good reputation, somebody who is not abusing children, somebody who speaks well but acts the same way he speaks, not somebody who says one thing and acts completely different. It's over and over and over again we see that godly character is one of the primary things, and godly character or godly conduct is a result of godly character. We are entrusted with God's work, and there is so much work to do that we don't have room for bad conduct. So we begin to dig in and understand what's taking place, and it says they strive to honor, they strive to serve and obey and please God alone. Listen, these next 11 characteristics that we're gonna see in verses seven and eight point out the godly conduct that we are to have, all right? But these five that it lists right here, are negative, aren't they? It says these are the negative things you shouldn't do. All right? Listen again what he says. He's entrusted with God's work. He must be blameless, not over what? Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent. Listen, overbearing would almost be an arrogance. It's somebody who is not temperate. In other words, somebody who lets... They're they're not self-controlled. And I've told you in the past, and I've I've said this before, I remember being in church when I was growing up where people threatened to fight each other in a meeting. It was like, where's your self-control, bro? Like, where are you at? Like, we're not in a street corner. We're not in a back alley. You're wanting to brawl with somebody because you have a disagreement. Okay, that's not temperate. That's being overbearing. And he says, You shouldn't be overbearing. In other words, we shouldn't get into quarrels. We should be self controlled. Then he goes on, he says, You shouldn't be quick tempered. You shouldn't be easily angered. No quick temper. In other words, do you lash out? If you're a person who lashes out quickly, you're easily provoked. You have a short fuse, then you disqualify yourself from the leadership position. You're not given to drunkenness. Now, listen, I know in today's world what people say. I know what's accepted. I know what everybody's saying, hey, it's okay to drink. But I want you to understand the role that takes place within the role of a pastor. And here's why we go down this road. Here's why I believe as a pastor, I'm not gonna drink. Number one, I don't like it anymore. Number two, I want you to understand why I don't drink, okay? Number one, nothing's ever good has come out of me drinking. I'm just telling you that. When I drank in high school, nothing ever good came out of it. It just led me into more and more problems. Now, I understand people are like, hey, I don't have a problem with having beer every now and then, I don't have anything. But listen to me as a leader. And here's why I fall on this side where I fall. The Bible says not to put a stumbling block in front of other people. And I know that there are people that would look and go, hey, he's drinking, I can drink. And therefore I can go home and I can get drunk. And I look at it and say, nope not going to do it. Number one, I don't like it, again, like I told you. But number two, I believe it speaks volumes that when a leader says, I can do this, but I'm going to do it in moderation, another person may say, I don't have the ability to moderate. I struggle with alcohol dependency, or I struggle with drug dependency, and they run into this realm of drunkenness. And what I'm going to say is this, that I wholeheartedly believe, number one, a leader should not be given to drunkenness. In other words, you may line up and say, hey, I think you should drink. I don't think it's anything wrong to have a beer every now and then. The question I want to ask you on this is this. If you give in to drunkenness, you're going biblically against what God says. That's the role that drunkenness plays within the life of a leader. Given to drinking that causes them to lose sound judgment. We've been on a live PD kick lately. Um, Our kids love watching live PD on Saturday nights. (laughs) And I'm just gonna go back to my high school days and then what I see on TV. Nothing good comes out of getting drunk. All you gotta do is watch a little bit of Live PD and you'll hear the stories people come up with. <laughs> You're like, really? I mean, last night we're watching, this guy wasn't drunk even, but we're watching this Live PD episode. Cop pulls up behind this guy. He's, he's parked on the side of the road. Lights flashing. And he's like, get out of the vehicle. Guy, five minutes. Guy never gets out of the vehicle. Another... Two more police show up. They got guns drawn and everything. Two more police show up. They finally get the loudspeaker out. Hey, get out of the vehicle. Put your hands up. He puts his hands up. Gets out of the vehicle and he says, I couldn't hear you. I had my music up too loud. And I looked at my wife and I went, man, he must think they're stupid. What about blue and red lights behind you do you not get? It's just one of those things that oftentimes comes up that we begin to see that we lose self-control when we give into this. Listen, here's the other thing. I don't wanna focus just on drunkenness. He says, not given to drunkenness. Now listen to what he says. Not violent and not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, not being somebody who's a bully, not somebody who is violently gonna go after people. And then I would even say this when we talk about not being violent, not being a manipulator of people because a manipulator of people is a violence towards people because you're getting them to do what you think they should do so he's not violent, and then not dishonest gain. Listen, one of those things, and, and, and I have to watch myself cautiously because I, have, I can get pretty critical, but there are people out there who do ministry in order to get dishonest gain. Like if you ever watch TV and somebody's like, send me your $25 and we'll pray over your prayer request and you'll be healed. Don't do it. I'll pray for you for free, okay? Just telling you. You don't have to pay some dude in order to get the blessing or to be prayed for, all right? So not for dishonest gain. Number three is this, all right? What does it mean to be a healthy leader or what's it take to be a healthy leader? Number three is a man of godly character. So we have a man of godly commitments, a man of godly conduct, a man of godly character. Here's the next ones. And these are the things he says to do. Listen to what he says. Rather, he must be hospitable. Chick-fil-A-ish, my pleasure, having people over, being open to accepting those who are outside your circle and being open to making friends with other people. That's this idea of hospital. Listen, one who loves what is good You know, we can sit back and go, do we love what is good? Do I love the good things that are coming out of people? Do I like to see the good brought up out of people? Do I love what God says when he says these are the good things? So one who is good, one who is self-controlled. Remember going back to not being overbearing? One who is self-controlled. The leader must be one who is self-controlled. And then he says this, one who is upright, holy, holy. And disciplined. Upright, in other words, somebody who is looked at by others as being good. One who walks with confidence that God is who He said He is, and one who walks with confidence knowing that God wants to fulfill His purpose in you. So He's upright, He's holy. That means He's set apart. Here's one of the biggest struggles in today's what I'll call Christian, American Christian bubble. When we talk about holiness, God over and over and over again says, you are to be holy because I am holy. I have called you to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are to be set apart, but yet holiness is not something most people strive for. Acceptance is what most people strive for. And what he says is the pastor, the leader, the people, the leadership within the church should strive to be holy and then disciplined. What, do I, what am I d- disciplined in? Disciplined in reading God's word, disciplined in caring for my family, disciplined in being committed to the church, disciplined in godly character. All of that I learned by reading more of scripture. All of that I learned by praying and understanding what he's doing. All of that I learned by being discipled. And then the last thing, here's the last thing we're gonna focus on. What does it mean? or what is a godly leader? The godly leader is a man of godly conviction. Listen to what he says in 1st in Titus chapter 1 verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Listen, here's what it literally means. He holds firmly to the trustworthy message means that the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God. He's affirming the Bible's priority in his life. He's affirming the authority of the Bible in his own life. And he's affirming the fact that how we live and what we do is based upon scripture and scripture alone, not based upon what everybody else thinks. And so he functions in that way. He has a godly conviction. And listen, he says this wholeheartedly. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And here's the reason why. So that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Can I tell you one of the most difficult things about being a pastor? Is that when people come and they're like, I need advice, I need help, I'm going the wrong direction, this is what I'm doing and you give the advice based upon a biblical standard, and this is the answer. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. Doesn't God know that the culture has changed? The Bible just needs to change and get with the times. Listen to me, that's going against holiness. It's going against self-control, and it's beginning to cave into the whims of what everybody else says. Remember, hold to the teaching is literally hold to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. What message is that? Yes, it's the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for any and all who would put their faith and trust in him, who would repent and believe. But listen to me, it's also good enough that the message still stands the same. The message is still the same. And so leaders must have no part in contradicting what they say by the life they live. In other words, I can't stand up here and say, this is what we hold to and then go out and do something completely else. Completely opposite. I have to function in a certain way. And that is a way that's based solely upon the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And then listen to what he says. So I can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Listen, sound doctrine, a lot of people go, okay, hey, that's great. But sound doctrine is the only thing that keeps you on the narrow road. Sound doctrine is the only thing that's gonna lead you in a way that says I follow Jesus and Jesus first because here's the problem. When we begin to sway and get away from sound doctrine, we begin to say, well, my viewpoint or my opinion kind of leads me to go this direction and what we do is we find ourselves wandering off the tracks and we're not staying on the narrow road but we're rather wandering out in this wide open road because the wide open road is what everybody else wants to take. And so here's the big struggle when it comes to it. Most people will say, yeah, but Brian, you gotta get with the times. You understand what's going on. Listen to me over and over and over in scripture. God said, he warned the people, it's gonna continue to get worse. Times are gonna get worse. People are gonna be lovers of themselves. They're gonna be treacherous, rash, conceited. They're gonna be haters of good. They're gonna love, matter of fact, they're gonna be to the point where they're gonna say that these things are good even though they're evil. There gonna be a point in time where the people who are viewed as good are viewed now as hateful. And what you have to begin to understand and begin to see is that's exactly what takes place in society. And it's happened all throughout time. But the truth of the matter is when you live in the world that we all live in, that we all relate to on a daily basis, that there are gonna be people who call good evil and evil good. And so the Bible very clearly says, look, there's gonna be a time where people were going to hate the message and they're gonna even worse, hate the messenger. But can you be a leader with godly conviction?